Hello, you are now listening to the Modem Podcast, where we deconstruct, examine, and discuss deeply technical data networking and information technology topics. Sit back and relax while we fire up Dial D and the 9600 Bob Modem and connect to the Wildcat BBS. Hello, and welcome to the first 2023 episode of the modem podcast now i'm i'm saying because we started this in what 2021 this is season three we're on three seasons now we're gonna we're gonna get close to fonzie jumping the shark i think pretty soon if we haven't done it already so for those of that vintage they may understand that reference uh it means that we'll start to suck real bad like worse than we already do Potentially. I don't think that's possible to get worse. But I don't think because of our guest, I don't think that's today. Because you've, you've gone all the way to the bottom. <laughs> no, we've got, we've got a superstar on now. Special, special guest. So no, that doesn't work I'm with me. Oh, it does. It really does. So those that don't know, um, you must live under a rock. I'm Nick Braulio. Um, one of the co-hosts and with me today is a whole bunch of people and this is gonna be a lively one but uh but our special guest is ed horley of the uh little podcast ipv6 buzz that folks may have heard of ed how you doing today i'm good man how are things <laughs> pretty, pretty good pretty good and 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 with me uh with ed and i to uh basically say I'm wrong all the time or uh, drop foul language in, in one of their cases, Jay, or just provide, uh, you know, a sane, sage, experienced-based comment that also probably says I'm wrong. You know, we have we have the three, the three wise men of, of the podcast here. We have Chris Cummings. Chris, how are you? Hey, doing okay. It's a new year and a new episode. And, uh, I don't know. I'm just yammering now. So new season, yeah. new season. Yeah. yeah. Not even a new episode. It's a new season. It's oh a new man. Se- whole new season. It's like, new it's season. like the MSG of seasonings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. We have, we have Jay Stewart. Who's now becoming frequent. You've been, you've been That's on right. twice now, right? Second time. Second time. Second we'll time make it season. a little more regular. And we can make you an That's official right. co-host like like Kevin and John. Get a sticker. Yeah, you, nah, there'll be no stickers. And as I mentioned, we have John Osman. Greetings. Our, our Sherpa. Our Sherpa. Sherpa, I like that. Network Sherpa. Sherpa. Let's do that. Uh, all right. It's a good, it's a new season. We need to do something good, which probably means we need to all just jump off our microphones, give it to Ed, and walk away. Yeah, probably. In some cases, they would say that I probably need to jump off the roof. <laughs> Do something good, also, Nick. Also acceptable, yeah. yeah please. Uh, we, so we, today, just need to, we just need to all yell at each other. That's it. That'll be good. It'll be like Twitter. Uh, so, so today, we have a topic, but I know this group, and I have a feeling that we're going to stray. So, so two, two topics, really. But let's just, let's just see where this takes us, right? So last season last season season two would be uh ed and i talked john and i talked about um point-to-point addressing and you know different ways to do it what we thought you know how we learned there's no kind of official like everybody's got an opinion right and so i get this message from ed going nope that's not right 
and here's my idea. And then he said, we should just do a podcast about this. And I thought, you know, that's a good idea. So that's what we're going to do. We're going we're to start with that. And then I suspect we will go really deep into V6 because kind of that's what we do. But yeah, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's just to reiterate for everyone, you know, that you guys were both wrong <laughs> about that. But I don't know if it really matters one way or the other. I mean, there's lots of ways to sort of slice and dice point to point and, and loop back configurations uh, depending on your need requirements. But I think my point to you was that maybe you hadn't considered everything um, in, in terms of yep. the decisions that you made around it. So maybe we recap really quick about what you guys had ended with uh, just for those that are just not inclined to go back and listen to you guys blather uh, for the amount of time about that particular topic. <laughs> Why would they not do that? I don't know. I don't know. I've got a better idea. Yeah. Ed, Ed, why don't you summarize the parts that you thought were important enough to say something about? Oh, that's really easy. You both were wrong. Um, and now we'll oh, talk okay. about V6 next. Um. <laughs> now to V6, news at 11. <laughs> it's just, no, so I, I think your comments were uh, along the lines of sort of, uh, of talking through the point-to-point sides and, and, and sort of going through some of the older RFCs and, and saying, hey, you know, most folks are probably going to be inclined to do 127s for point-to-point links to prevent some of the older RFC habit uh, stuff that's that's out there in regards to like ping pong attacks and things like that that are, just aren't a thing anymore. Um, <laughs> it's just to put that out there. That's that's one of the things that's, that's sort of come up and like, yeah, from a best practices standpoint, uh, 127s are definitely a doable thing. Uh, I think there's a couple of downsides with it. Number one, just counting that way sucks, right? Zero and one is not how most people start counting. So when you're building point-to-point links with zero, one, two, three, right? Four or five, that's not natural from a most people. I mean, it depends on how your your organization works for networking. Do most people start counting from one or from zero? Eh, every org is different. <laughs> yeah. I'd say probably most start counting from one just as a, as a sequence basis. Um, you know, doing 126s is probably even more heinous than doing 127s. Um, but it really depends on what you're up to and what you're trying to solve for. So if you're trying to solve for the, like, I need multiple devices in order to be able to have multiple default gateways or multiple devices in on routing, et cetera, et cetera, you can, you can definitely do the 126s. And then I think you guys had sort of arrived at loopbacks being 128s because, well, you know, 128s are all the way specific and that's what you do there. How was that for a summary? I think that's pretty close. I think the, the, I think the one thing that we should note is that for 127s, the idea uh, or the prevailing idea in the way that I've seen it done the most is you reserve a 64 and mm-hmm. then you take a 127 out of that. And the way I've actually, I've almost never seen it done as a zero and a one. It's always you reserve the 64 so that you can take one and two, or I'm sorry, two and three. Two and three. Out of three. That. Yeah, yeah, two and three out of that. Yeah, and um, you actually have to do that still uh, on, I think, Juniper. Uh, I, I could be wrong on that, but I have run into issues, at least on certain loads of Junos, where if yeah, you zero is not a legit address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has to do with the router, the all routers any cast address. I actually learned some cool stuff about that. I didn't really know much about all routers any cast as part mm-hmm. of V6 because it's not like a commonly used thing. And that was right. pretty interesting. Yep. Yeah, I just saw some comments on that on 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 Reddit, which I've recently started reading. A little bit of because Jason's eight million Reddit links every every week <laughs> to look at. So Jason is the millennial stuff on there. I think the only um, thing I'd add is like a recap or as like a like a my flavor, which everybody wants to hear my opinion, obviously, uh, would be that like, you know, from an address planning standpoint too, when it comes to your point to points, like a lot of people will try to 
like figure out how to summarize them in unique ways. So maybe like somebody will do a, a you know, oh, I'll just do a slash 64 that has all my 127s in it. And that's a bad idea. Like you said, I, I'm a big fan of the reserve of 64 assign a 127. My opinion there is it's belt and suspenders. Like, yeah, is the ping pong stuff a problem anymore? No. If you're just two routers, like, is it going to harm you to do it? Probably not. Um, but Ooh, like, we're going to get to that. Hold yeah, that I would thought. like to hear that. I, I, I'd also like to hear that thought like in, in relation to uh, like TCAM usage, because I feel like that's what yep. we're probably going to get into. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. exactly. That's 100% what we're going to get into. So, yes. So and then the other thing I'd add is just like, you know, making sure that your address plan is, you know, based off, you know, function, not off location as such uh, when you can, just because like you can build your firewall rules around your point to points uh, a lot easier to just point to a 40. Uh, mm -hmm aggregate for all your point to points right we're talking v6 so slash 40 and backs whatever and I, i've totally done that where you you take a 64 and you just start carving 126s out of it that's how my last job was built and the whole reason behind that was so that we could so that we could create one firewall rule so it was the yeah. same concept it was just not done in in a way that you know is probably the it's prevailing part yeah yeah well let's let's so, Ed, yeah Ed, what's your uh well, let's pivot on it and, and talk about that ex explicitly. So let's say you're, you're running a relatively large, good-sized network, and it seems like most enterprises' default routing protocol is OSPF, right? And many folks are pretty lazy on the OSPF side, right? You're running single areas for large swaths of, of the network that they're operating. You just hit the easy button, uh, sort of set that up, and, and assume they go that way. So you have to remember a couple things in regards to, you know, especially if you're doing OSPF in a single area, right? The moment you're interjecting any related loopback or point-to-point -point interfaces, LSA type fives, you're going everywhere, right? <laughs> Every single device is going to is gonna need those things, perform Dijkstra on all of it. And that's really going to cause, as Chris had mentioned, a TCAM problem, right? Because almost every vendor who optimizes on TCAM is optimizing on either a 32 or 64-bit boundary. That is the optimization that they work off of. Now, there's choices on the routing protocol side. If you're doing, if you're old school in all Cisco and you're doing the RGRP, you can summarize on the interface and you don't have this particular problem because you can do that explicitly on the router. But with OSPF, you don't get that choice. So the moment you start interjecting more and more loopbacks for functional reasons, or you start introducing more and more point-to-point -point links for peering reasons, you start really bifurcating your TCAM at a pretty extensible level. And if you're doing any sort of dual stack, this means that you're moving from the total number of routes you have on a v4 basis to either four times or potentially eight times or 16 times depending on how your tcam allocations are working of using that much more space and this can have a really detrimental effect if especially if you're way past the 50 percent utilization on tcam already in your v4 space you're introducing a whole series of structural problems if you just stick to the 64 even for your point-to-point -point links even though you're wasting address space and just put a filter on you get the same end result of a 127, but you're using a 64 and you're not bifurcating your TCAM space. And for larger networks, this actually has a pretty big impact. Now, obviously, when you're passing across AS boundaries or routing protocols, you summarize as appropriate, you structurally isolate that related problem. But as we start thinking of bigger and bigger networks and, and larger and larger TCAM bank allocations and controller architectures, where maybe a routing protocol isn't as important as what's getting pushed down into the fabric to inform things about where they're at and what forwarding decisions they need to make, 64s to 127s to 128s start making a difference. And so just thinking about it structurally that way and sort of, you know, that's the lead off, right, is really your TCAM 
and understanding what your platform is capable of supporting, but not just your platform, but the one that is three series behind that is still getting all the OSPF information, still having to do Dijkstra and still having to allocate everything in TCAM, you may cause it to fall over, even though your most modern current one that you're currently operating on is just fine. And so you need to think about the longer term impacts, what the radius is of your of your actual you know routing protocol and what what impacts can happen there. So from a V6 design basis, I don't like telling people 127s, 128s. I like saying, what's the impact zone of how your TCAM is is is, is going to be impacted this? And should you be making 64 decisions instead of a different prefix length? And that's that's not a perfect answer, but I do feel like it's a more nuanced answer than maybe what you know, Nick and John are given the, the first time through around, around that discussion to, to sort of give the audience a little bit more detail and a little so, bit more engineering nuance about it. So to rephrase perhaps in a dumb man's terms, like basically like, well, what you're saying is if you're using a 64 on your loop back, you're going to probably use anywhere from four to 16 times less TCAM, uh, just with the same number of routers in your network, all mm-hmm. that stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, and there's part of it is, as you guys are well aware, every vendor does a different TCAM bank allocation configuration, depending yep. on what the platform is. Some of them, very few of them are dynamic, actually. And, and, and depending on what's going on, you may have to hard set, this is dual stack, this is V6 only, this is V4 only, this is L3, L2. Like there's a whole set of sequences to, for going through that. If you're really old school, like you remember your old Cisco devices, Catalyst, you know, 3850s, SDM template types even the current Catalyst series, right? You're still having to go in and tune all that stuff. And you can you can allocate a certain portion to routing versus, you know, switching versus, you know, et cetera. And this impacts all of that. And you have to remember, it builds that tree in advance and boots the device, right? When it's booting, it pre-builds all of that and allocates it out. So if you want to change it, you're rebooting your device. So if you don't want to have service outages in relation to that, you, you need to sort of be proactive in terms of calculating what that impact is going to be. That's the hard engineering yeah, I, side before you get into the deployment. I think there's something to be said too. Um, you know, at least when John and I are talking about it, I know I do this and I suspect John probably does too. Um, when we think about TCAM allocation or when I think about it, I don't want to speak for you, John, you can, you can, uh, you can do that yourself. But when I think about that, I think about how many routes can I fit? Uh, I think if, I think about it from a DFZ perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. I come from a service provider background. So I'm thinking, can I fit the full table in here? What do I need to do to make sure that I can get a full V4 table and a full V6 table? I don't think about it from an IGP perspective that maybe an enterprise is going to be looking at because that's not the type of gear that I typically touch. So that's an important distinction too, is that, that, that shifts depending on what point of view you're coming from, right? If you're coming from an enterprise or a, a LAN perspective, that's a very different uh, CAM partition profile than you're going to have on a carrier router, right? I'm, ta- I'm, I'm speaking in, in brocadisms now because that's what I remember the best, having to repartition CAM, par- uh, CAM profiles and then mm-hmm. reboot the box because it basically reprograms the hardware at that point. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I'm I keep, I'm, you're exactly right. The view on that TCAM is going to be colored by the types of networks you've been working with over time. Um, what I did like immediately when you started talking about this is it pushes things more back into the idea of, you know, look at everything as a 64. And the more things we look at as a 64 and we get more people thinking that way, the more we can get people 
to be a little happier with the way they have to look at V6 and maybe get a little more adoption from people that have been a little slow. It removes even any more having to think about subnet sizing once exactly. again, which is one of the beauties of V6. Yeah, I do yes. like that. Now, I am curious, uh, Ed, maybe this is a little bit off topic, but what your opinions are uh, regarding the uh, loopback sizing uh, in most, uh, well, for like colon colon slash 28. Right, your colon calls one slash one. Yeah, I, I use the same principle for loopback because loopbacks are often used for for peering across across links, and they may be used for you know tunnel termination, and so they end up needing to get propagated everywhere. So if you are having the same structural TCAM problem, or you think you might have it, uh, doing sixty four for loopbacks doesn't hurt you either. Um, and the reality is is that it, everyone sort of freaks out about this, but it's like if you're assigning. A 64 anyway for these functions and you're only using a 127 out of it you still consumed all the address space anyway so it doesn't matter whether you're actually you know how, how you're thinking about it um in terms of in terms of address allocation you've got plenty of address space to be able to allocate all the loopbacks that you want to doing them as 64s versus doing them as 128s it's not really usually impactful within an address plane unless you just sorely just don't have enough address space to begin with and that go solve that problem don't go solve the you know, I need yeah. to build 128s and, and increment them all out of the same 64 in order to to make my life good. That that you're actually hurting yourself that way from a routing, from a summarization, from a whole whole set of reasons that that uh, yeah. you know you make sense once you actually start getting in and playing around on the lab. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. I, I am curious if you have any opinions that it's a, a slightly different loopback use, but the uh, change from v4 to v6 from going you know from 127.0.0 slash eight. Uh, which I have personally found very useful to have multiple mm -hmm. uh, addresses on my loopback to be able to do mm -hmm. things like on a, from a from a host standpoint, right? Not really from a network device standpoint. And then in V six, moving to colon colon one slash one twenty eight, um, like you know, to me that seems kind of like a step backwards and very anti like the entire V six mindset of you know U sixty four is everywhere. We don't have to worry about conserving address space. We think in networks. We don't think in addresses. And then it's like. Uh, but on system loopbacks, we're going to use colon colon and one slash one twenty eight. Um, I don't know if you have any like opinions on that. Like, do you have any like maybe insight in history and like why did we do that? Like, why why did we go that way? And in regards to the uh, the zero on the loopback, um, yeah, I, I think technically on the RFC side that the zero space is actually a larger allocation than just purely the uh, the colon colon one space um, for for that purpose. So if you read the RFC, there's more available there. I think it's more of an implementation issue than it is in what's available in the RFC issue in terms of the address space of having more available loopbacks for system purposes. Um, so yeah, Chris, you're probably right. Uh, I think your mileage will vary depending on which operating system you have and whether you can support doing more than that. Um, but I believe in the original, um, uh, I think in 8200 even, it's, it, it states that there's more space available to do that to do that function. It's just a matter of, I don't think it's really been utilized at all in the same way that it has been in V4, but V4 has been starving for addresses to, to, to host for that purpose. So I think that's the reason that you saw a little bit more activity there. Just my guess. Um, and then from a loopback perspective for devices, networking devices, um, right, it really just depends on, on how you guys, you know, typically do that in terms of whether you build a functional address range for loopback purposes or whether you do it, you know, geographically bound. I see companies that do both. They have a set of loopbacks that are geographically bound for the purpose of route aggregation. And then they have a set of functional ones that act as overlays on top and uh, basically don't have to get routed in a summarization through the, through the site because they're an overlay. Um, and that seems to be a better, 
a better design solution, at least in terms of in terms of not disaggregating their routing and not having specific 128s that get splattered across the WAN, except for the ones that are actually part of the backbone itself. I don't know if that's a good so, answer or not, but it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's very reasonable. Um, so I had I had a thought too. What one of the reasons that so when I learned everything was a 64, right? Because that's most of the equipment we worked on just didn't take anything else, right? It was a 64 or a hold down route that you announced out and that was it. Right. Uh, it made it really simple. It made it actually much easier to learn, if I'm being quite honest. And it made it much easier to teach as well. Yes. One of the things that came up and I think was a driver for the point to points not being 64s and specifically being 127s was neighbor table exhaustion. Now you run into this conversation when you start talking about really any, any slash 64 host net mm -hmm. or whatever is, you know, right. how do we, how, how do we account for that? Now on a host net, that's sort of expected, right? You're expected to use a whole bunch of neighbor table entries because you're going to have rotating addresses and temporary addresses and all those things, but you shouldn't see any of that on point to points. Uh, and if I'm remembering right, that was once considered an attack vector. Yeah. You can um, solve that with an ACL. <laughs> you can solve you, it with an ACL. If you, if you, if you, if you build standard, uh, point to point link addressing space, even with 64 and just decide that it's going to be one and two and write an ACL that just says we only accept one and two and anything else gets dropped to the floor. You pretty much solve that problem, right? You starve out yeah, the resource at the, at the edge as close as possible and, and it doesn't go across your backbone. The, the packet payload never makes it across. You don't have to worry about it. And it doesn't cause now, any neighbor, are, neighbor exhaustion. At on, all. on some equipment though, that's also a TCAM resource you have to consider. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. ACL builds are. Yeah, so yeah, you're going to have, you, you're going to have loopbacks. You got six loopbacks on the thing. You're going to have six ACL entries. Well, and it also depends too on if you're working, like who's, what's, where's your trust boundary here, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, if it's your point to points between your routers, sure, you can put an ACL at your edge to block that stuff, which you definitely should. Um, if you're on like a peering with a, uh, you know, perhaps medium level of trust person, an ACL is not going to really help you there, right? Because uh, those are still going to go into your, uh, your actual, uh, your your forwarding table on the router uh right. even if the acl drops it so mm -hmm. you could still have some benefits of scoping that down on trust boundaries perhaps maybe yes i would i would I, that's the same enforcement policy that you would take of saying look you know i don't route rfc 1918 from the public internet back into my backbone right. <laughs> it's a it's the same that's design criteria yeah it's a yeah exactly yeah, I mean, piece I'm, that's kind of hit me in the head is, the, you know, the idea, you know, the difference between management and data plane. I almost think of ACLs as like an administrative plane that's a third piece that forwarding packets shouldn't matter. The ACLs are there to stop you from getting other problems. So I'm, I'm a little aghast that, you know, the neighbor discovery piece is going to be only fixed by ACLs, which isn't part of the, well, it's the, not only. actual forwarding piece. Yeah, it's not only. I mean, there's there's other ways to mitigate uh, some of that. Um, the reality is, is is neighbor discovery is necessary uh, as a replacement for you know being able to find who your neighbor actually is. You know, ARP and reverse ARP right? <laughs> in terms of that function. Um, but the the reality is, is that it's it's really where do your resources run out? So if someone's requesting to hit a, a set of resources within a, 
a slash 64 that you designated, but you're only using a 127. The only reason that you don't, you're, you're still going to end up forwarding those, those packets to that interface. It just doesn't have an address to use them. So it drops it to the floor. Uh, that's not really from a functional basis, any different than an ACL that drops it to the floor um, from a pure like CPU and processing basis. Right. Yeah. It's just, there that's are a forward. Sorry. I mean, that's, that's just a forwarding decision versus a ACL drop decision. So that's how I sort of see it. You're still forwarding the packet either way, right? It still has to get forwarded to that interface to make a decision that it's only a 127 that's configured on there because it's actually a route in your routing table because the 64 is still going out as a route. So it doesn't matter. That so would be my counter argument. There are platforms that allow you to, so say you've got a peering router, right? It's not mm -hmm. landing any hooks. It's, you know, it's not an access layer device. You know, it's not aggregating any, any networks of hosts. There are mechanisms for uh, minimizing the amount of neighbor table that is allowed as well, mm -hmm. so that you don't run those resources out. And I remember a couple of years ago there was a there was a Microtik CVE that was pretty gross. That basically you could run that. I wrote a little script that actually did it. It would run out that even when it was set, right? Mm -hmm. So it would just bypass that, and then they fixed it. And that got me thinking about other platforms that have that capability. But on peering routers. You know, you can set your your neighbor table size on certain platforms to be very, very low. That way you you don't run that risk of running TCAM out. Now, when you're when you're landing hosts like in a data center or in an office building or something like that, you have to be a little bit more careful. So here's to do that. But for for if we're talking about V6 and for federal organizations or enterprises that are looking at doing this and they're looking at their internal routing and, and to this point about why I'm saying 64 sources, 127s or 128s. You have to remember, you're going to filter at the edge first. So you're going to know that entire address range. And if you've already specified it, you write the ACL once at the internet edge side to just not allow anyone to hit any other addresses that would fit within that point. In fact, there's no reason that they even need to touch any of your point-to-point -point links. You could just block access to that entire you know, 40 or whatever you allocated, 52 that you allocated for those purposes within those sites for point-to-point -point links. There's no reason they need to talk to those at all. They just need to be able to forward packets across it, but they don't need to talk to that prefix. So just block it and just say, yeah, I don't, I don't want you talking to my router, <laughs> like at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think my point was more towards, my, well, yeah, my point was more towards, you know, when you have a point to point between you and a yeah, third party. That's, it's that's, more common in the ISP space, which, but, but like, I'm willing, like but, I'm, but I'm willing to compromise and say, if that's my internet edge or a partner network, I'll do a 127 there to, to limit it down because exactly. I'm not taking that in my IGP and redistributing that all through OSPF. It's external to my exactly. network and it may even just be a static static entry set anyway, in which case I'm willing to live with that as a compromise. And this is why I say this is a more nuanced discussion around, yeah. around the architecture. But as a general rule, if I'm inside my network, I probably don't want to be consuming, like you're very prescriptive on your internet peering edge. You probably have a very good understanding of TCAM impact and, and what's going to happen there. But I may not know the smallest TCAM device that I'm going to deal with internal to my network yeah. because I don't get to touch every single device that might happen in a sufficiently large one. And a bad decision there could have cascading impacts on locations that you don't have any visibility to because of, the, because of how your routing protocol is working. And that's the difference in terms of like internet peering is usually pretty narrow scoped and, and, and you have a really good understanding of what's going on there. Now, obviously, if you work at a huge service provider, your entire service provider network is your peering network, in which case that's a different discussion altogether. But I'd say for most enterprises and federal organizations that aren't, man aren't managing something that looks like a service provider backbone, 
you're going to have some of these structural discussions that you have to work your way through and understand where your IGP impacts are going to be. And, and do you even own all of your IGP resources? If different teams are managing it at different locations, you might just be inheriting whatever they're deciding to do in their location. And may, that may not be a good thing, right? So it's yeah. trying to figure out, it's trying to reduce your impact, your footprint on other people and trying to reduce what it's necessarily going to come back to you too. Yeah, and, and you brought up a good point too, just from like a general, like be good on the internet. Uh, you should be really careful about whether or not you actually advertise, uh, you know, those peering edge uh, networks into uh, your IGP at all in the first place, just from like a DDoS mitigation standpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't want to be able to have your network used for things. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very good point. Yeah, those that's I've seen so many confusing, you know, confused uh instances of folks that you know we we get like nasty gram reports from you know scanning tools that say hey you know this is this is vulnerable to blah 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 and it's the other side of a point-to-point link right that's advertised you know it's part of a you know it's it's part of a summarized route that's announced globally but we don't control you know we could the quote-unquote we you know, whoever owns that doesn't control the other side of it because it's a point-to-point link to a partner or a provider or a peer of some way, but they have a problem with their equipment that reports back, you know, it basically manifests as you having a problem with something because when you go look up the address space, it's your address space, but it's on a device that you have no control over. So that's one of those, like you said, Ed, it's, it's, it's one of those nuanced things and I'm going to say it because we say it in every episode and it's, it depends, right? It just depends on what is where and when and why uh, I've seen similar conversations about advertising IX space globally. Like, should you advertise public IX space, like the peering fabric address space globally? And I've, I've peered with uh gigapops that don't do it. And the, the ones that do as well. And, I actually had that in an interview question. Should you, should that be advertised? And I was like, this is a man, this is a loaded question. So I gave a very, it depends answer to that because of that exact reason. Right. It's, right. it's hard to control that. Well, the important well, part is being able to argue both sides or multiple sides of these things so that you can actually look at all of those, all those facets yeah. and decide what makes sense for your network and within the design that you've already put together. Yeah, which yeah, is exactly why why I wanted to drama. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to come on and, and and sort of give a counterpoint to what you guys had said, which is hey, you know, having understanding both sides and understanding some of the impacts makes you a better engineer because you're going to understand potentially what is or is not going to happen based off of your decisions about we should use 127s, you should, we should use 128s for loopbacks. What impact does that have? And can you can you articulate what the impact is going to be? What the risks are going to be? upstream for your management team to understand like this may not be a great decision because we're already at you know we're currently at 54 percent utilization on tcam we're going to introduce and the management team decided we're going to dual stack right what what does that look like and you better get in the lab and test it right and and be able to show what you're going to do and you might have to make some compromising decisions is 64 the the best thing to do for you know point-to-point links Depends. I guess it depends on your platform, depends on your TCAM utilization, depends on what your comfort level is. Certainly a heck of a lot easier to do automation with the 64 than it is trying to do the 127s all over the place and figure out what the heck you're doing to a certain degree because it's a little bit simpler and you can stamp it out and it's easier for folks to read. 
but a 127 in a in a in a route table is a heck of a lot easier to recognize and say like that's a point to point link, right? Yeah. Or the 128, that's a loopback, you know. So there's is your vision operationally focused or is it ease of automation focused or is it like I'm just design focused? There's different aspects of of what's a plus and what's a minus. And every team's going to look at it differently. So not everyone's going to look at it and look at the prefix portion and say like, oh, well, I recognize that as, as coming out of our, coming out of an address space that's designed for point-to-point -point links. I just know that off the top of my head. I recognize that prefix versus someone who recognizes a 127, yeah. right? I think, the, I think the days of visual indicators for things are coming. I mean, I think we're past that at this point. I mean, it's nice. I made a career out of it, uh, <laughs> but like... Well, there are a couple of things that are useful still, like, uh, you know, even for, since link locals are used for like OSPF neighbor adjacencies, right? It's sometimes it's nice yeah. to stick a router ID in there and it's like, you know, FE80 colon colon five colon one, like, okay, I'm peering with router, router ID five, right? So I know, you know, I know five is on the other side that I'm exchanging route with. So when I look in my route table, because everything's next hop is link local address, I'm like, oh, I got that route from router five, <laughs> right? Something like some small metadata that's embedded in the right way with the right thought process, I don't have a problem with. Sticking your VLAN information all over the place, meh, you know, is that useful? Depends on what your role is. If you're, if you're a help desk person, you're actually looking at some of that stuff and you're like, oh, well, our voice handsets should be in VLAN 234, but they're in VLAN, this one's in VLAN 110 because I can tell just from the address. Oh, that's could be useful information for them. Depends, I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's... It, it really depends on what your operational model is and how that fits out. So like with yeah, everything else. Yeah, that's true. You know? Don't knock the ability to have sort of like the little micro automations where a person's going to hit that 12 times a day times by how many help desk staff are actually doing the task at hand, right? Because that can certainly build up. I also, Ed, to your point, I, I kind of feel like unnumbered needs to become the evolution, right? Like if you're wondering about TCAM space and point-to-point -point addressing, like unnumbered is just more efficient in terms of, you know, how many sessions that need to ride on the box and how many links you need to configure and what addressing that you need. That almost like makes most sense to become the next evolution if like you have that many links, you know, running a data center environment, VPN fabric, um, just where it most makes most sense. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, I think there are a lot of other people that are thinking in a similar way for for large scale fabric design. It 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 seems to work that 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 would work out better. The good news is, you know, for large scale fabric design for the underlay, um, no one gets to see that addressing anyway, except for you guys as, as as just a route basis. So the reality is, is unnumbered might help to mitigate a few risks. I think in the overlay, it's probably more impactful than in the underlay portion of of whatever you would you would be doing since those are probably all fixed controlled and you're probably going to use a controller to deploy and operate and build all of that stuff. And you're probably going to have very strict ACLs about who can get in and actually touch the underlay from a management perspective. It's probably just going to be for alerting a lot, the logging and, and monitoring and, you know, tap application and stuff like that. That's going to go on for, for the underlay. I, I could be wrong, you guys, but that's just sort of how I see it uh, for something like, you know, a VXLAN EVPN solution. And then you're really going to want to concentrate on because the impact for the TCAM side is really going to be for the overlay, right? In terms of what happens there, and and it also depends on how many routing protocols and how much leakage you want to do with VRF and everything else, and whether your routing protocols are passing that stuff back and forth. So, you know, that's that's part of the challenge that goes along with it too. 
anyway, I, I just wanted to bring it up. I, I'm not saying you guys are entirely wrong, but you're wrong. And uh, <laughs> I, just I like make, getting you know, different opinions on things because as soon as you assume that you know everything, then you're living in a fantasy world. So, and and, and, and part of the problem time. with this is that there's some older RFCs that talk explicitly about this, about the point-to-point. So what is it, 61, yeah. 64? There's a couple others that talk about, you know, the older, you know, it was a hardware-specific problem, uh, for ASIC problem for a manufacturer way back in the early days around the ping-pong-related attacks and the fact that the 127 was really, you know, the, the 64 was really a structural issue of exhaustion for them. This has been mm-hmm. fixed in their ASICs for years, for decades now. So the reality is, is that RFC, as it was born for for the need requirements it, it just isn't there anymore in the same way this has been addressed by every single manufacturer now so it's not just not an issue but the problem is the rfc is still out there it still exists people still cite it quote it people still put requirements and it hasn't been updated and it that's has not the, been that's updated. The problem. Right. been updated and it hasn't been updated so you know people point to it and say like well this is gospel well you know okay mm-hmm. that's that's great but you were solving a different problem a decade and a half ago or you know a decade ago whenever yeah. the heck it came out so I think I think that's part of the other challenge that goes along with this hand in hand is do you really understand the current operational environment and do you understand what you're writing in specs when you're asking for the things you're asking for? Because you're forcing people from a, to make design architecture decisions based off of RFCs that are you know were, were quite a long time ago. It's just like if you were to get your allocation, if you got your allocation for your V6 address space a decade ago, you're going to get a very different size allocation today than a decade ago. You thought it was great that your organization got a 32 and you're like, woohoo, there's no way we'll ever use that much address space. We're getting organizations slash 24, slash 28, slash 20s even, um, depending on what they structurally need to do. And, and it's just, it's a totally different environment of understanding and, and, you know, a decade of thinking and working through engineering problems and design architectures. And you'd be foolish to take the advice of someone from a decade ago versus uh, staying current with understanding what, what you actually need to do. I, I sort of think this fits in the same category. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's definitely good to talk these things through again. And I, and I, d- I also agree that, you know, a 32 is basically a 48 at this point. Uh, almost every allocation I've seen, I had, when I got mine for ZTVI, I had to specifically ask for something smaller than a 32. Um, mostly cause uh, we were paying just out of pocket for it, you know, as a playground and we didn't want to, we didn't want to pay for a 32, but we had to go through a couple of hoops to get a 40 because it just wasn't something that they typically offer. You had to, it's not even an option. You have to go and ask a person yeah. to get that. You have to go open a, a, a special support case just to get something smaller. I yeah. look, I'm, and, and I'm not saying that uh, all, you know, just like with everything you can't, paint a blanket brush for solving all problems around around this thing. But I do think there are many organizations that are feeling resource constrained in, in the area of routing and TCAM uh, for larger organizations because they don't necessarily get to control all the things that happen routing-wise on their network. And they have to accept routes from certain folks and, and they have to be able to participate in that way. And so they're stuck in a in a situation where they, they need to be engineering more carefully. And I think that's one of the things they need to consider. That was the only reason I wanted to bring it up. And besides the fact that heckle you guys that you're wrong. No, that's fine. I mean, the TCAM utilization and just TCAM in general is something that isn't well understood, I think, across a lot of engineering disciplines. And it's also not really considered very often. I mean, to be honest, before I started touching DFC gear, I never even thought about it. It was like, well, the gear can do switching and I can do whatever I need. And 
I'm not going to think about how many routes I could throw into it. Right. And, and I think that's a prevailing uh, way of thinking. I don't know. You guys, you guys are younger than well, me, Chris I, and Jay. What do you think about that? I think what's funny, at least to me, is everyone talks about this neighbor exhaustion problem with point to point links, but no one talks about the, the rapid temporary addresses that happen on wireless networks now for when the interface mm -hmm. goes down and pops back up and builds hundreds, if not thousands of entries for a single device within, you know, a, a normal daily use of, of a user on a wireless network. And no one talks about the exhaustion of what needs to happen on the controller or in, or in any of the switching fabric in order to be able to support that, <laughs> which I think is so a much bigger, a it's a much bigger problem than anything would happen on your point to point links. I mean, I, I think anyone who's trying to exploit your network and is trying to do a denial of service stack against your point to point links is probably just trying to learn how to do a denial of service stack of some type and is starting off in their career because anyone who's sophisticated for security basis wants packets forwarding. <laughs> right? So, so it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, that's not the area of concern I would have. I would be much more concerned around sort of the, 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 you know, temporary secure Mac, you know, rapid Mac address components that Apple does. And now, you know, Google supports and, and others around, you know, security and privacy than I would ever be worried about how many addresses I'm chewing up. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit because ironically, at the last IETF meeting, that actually manifested as an operational problem on their network. <laughs> and a, a draft was written on site <laughs> because of that problem. And it's interesting because there's a bunch of different things. There's not just the stuff you said, Ed, there's the temporary addressing that never goes away. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, it stays in cash. Stuff, especially on Chrome OS, you know, Chromebooks. Mm -hmm use containers for all kinds of stuff and each of them is going to grab its own ipv6 address it uses a you know it's a container right so it's got yep. a, a, a hundred dot whatever address for v4 that it nats out whatever the public address is and then for v6 it bridges it right and, and so it, you know there can be hundreds or thousands of devices and then the temporary addresses that are spun up on at least on max and i assume it's on other things well if you have a connection that's using that temporary address say you've got 20 SSH sessions and they're all on a different temporary address, those stay there for mm -hmm. the duration of the SSH sessions because right. you, by definition, away, breaks. Yep. right? Yeah. I, I, used to, I used to run ARP watch at my house all the time. People would come into the house. <laughs> my kids would get my kids that have a friend come in and I'd say, Hey, ask your friend if this is the Mac address on their phone. If it is all, you know, but all of a sudden you've got, this explosion of things going around. How do you manage this stuff? How do you, I mean, I know that yep. this is all part of this, but um, this is, this is not going down the point to point side yet. It is at the same time. So um, I'm. Yeah, it's the, it's the reverse. Pro I see this as the reverse yeah. problem. Um, and, and the reality is, is that I think for enterprises and, you know, probably federal networks that need to be secure, you know, something like a policy in 802.1x and DHCPv6 addresses the issues that principally fall into this category, which is you get a singular address, you get authenticated on our network, we know exactly who you are, we know what address was assigned to you, and that's the address you use for services, and that's that. And, and that solves that particular issue in a, in, a, in a slightly cleaner way. It's not what, obviously, Android wants to hear, because, you know, that's... The, the team at Google is, is adamantly against a DHCPv6 client. But um, the reality is, is I think for many folks, that's just going to be the practical practical portion. And Apple will comply with that if, they, if you take an Apple iOS device and plug it on wireless DHCPv6, it'll stick with its singular address. It doesn't try and build temporaries or do anything else strange. 
uh, along that side. So yeah. So and get the, this: the two people that wrote that draft mm-hmm. were both from Google. Mm-hmm. So it's the. Uh, well, but was one of the was one of them or Lorenzo is the question? Yes. Jen, yeah, yes. Lorenzo and Jen. Yeah. Yes, he wrote he the draft. draft. Yeah, and Jen and I actually volunteered to help because I actually agree with the, this is a problem. Essentially, what they want to do is take, I don't remember the RFC, but there's a mobile IPv6 RFC that basically assigns a slash 64 to a device so that then it can sub allocate for anything that tethers to it. And what they've proposed and what I I actually think this is a reasonably good idea is 64 per host. And then it sub delegates to any containers. Right. Now. It's, you know, it's the V6 ops group. And so there's a lot of discussion that happens about, you know, all the f- fringe details that sort of go along that with it. Pro- but that was proposed ages ago. Uh, so that was, um, who was it? Oh, Andrew Yuchenko, I think, proposed some doing something similar like that a long time ago. For this was like I mean, a post. Yeah, you can this- prototype it out real easy by using a uh, DHCP V6 P client and server. Mm hmm. Yep. Um, but yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think that that would actually solve some of the the wireless exhaustion issues because then it becomes a route problem. Yes. And, and not uh, you know a, that's a, a scalable problem. problem. Yeah, that's a scalable problem to solve because you're just forwarding to a, a singular device for a route as opposed to saying like all the neighbors exist back behind there and I have to fill up my tables to point to it. You don't have to do that. It's a single route entry. Makes a lot yep. more sense. I actually like that quite a bit as a mm-hmm. as a design model. Um, mm-hmm for uh you know for wireless well I, I guess i guess i got a question for you guys since you work since nick chris i guess all of you guys get a chance to work on maybe some v6 only networks um uh i'm, I'm sort of curious to what, about what your feeling is around the current 646x lat support if you're running a v6 only network would you like to see client support on a land side be able to use a clat and a plat configuration it seems like Absolutely. we're a little bit behind where our counterparts are on the mobile side. The mobile side's got this really well dialed in. It's built into the operating systems, but it, it seems like it would be really nice to have a, you know, a CLAC capability within operating systems so that if they recognize they're on a V6 only network, they can do the right thing for things like embedded IPv4 addresses and some other stuff. Maybe not NAT64, DNS64. If it's not capable of supporting that, then they have something else to fall back on. Thoughts? Yeah, so not out there's there in the a, universe. Th- there's a, uh, I can tell you with certainty that that actually makes life a lot easier. Right. Um, when Mac OS uh, integrated that into 13.1 yeah. or whatever, whichever version they put it into very recently, all the problems of, uh, you know, applications not working because they have some weird embedded IPv6 or IPv4 address in there, they just went away. Like even the problems with my brains, you know, brain to keyboard, like I want to type ping Mm -hmm. 1.1 or whatever, right? Just all that that muscle memory stuff that has IPv4 addresses in it, that all just disappeared. Yeah. The moment I saw the prefix, knew what to send it for the NAT64 and it was done, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it was, and, and it works exceptionally well. I really wish that literally anybody other, you know, everybody else would do this. I think Mac OS is the only major desktop. Yeah. You have to install a package on the Linux side, which is not, which is not wonderful. And it's it's just sketchy. Yeah. It's a little clunky. Uh, Windows, strangely enough, has all the code in the OS, 
but it's only available on a wireless WAN, you know, 5G, 4G interface that'll actually yep. activate it. So I've been, we, we put a request in, hopefully, fingers crossed, maybe someone from Microsoft is listening, but uh, if we can get DHCP option 108 supported in the IPv4 world that actually indicates on wire, hey, you're a V6 only network, can you please turn your, your PLAT on? That would be, and, and, and realize you're a V6 only network and, and, and provide this transition capability, that would be really cool. Or if we could get, you know, that, R, that proposed RFC to try and get like a, you know, IPv6 RA, you know, S flag that says you're on a V6 only network or whatever the heck they were proposing, uh, that would be pretty yeah. simple. Anyway. Yeah, I've got a packet capture of the Mac going through the process of figuring out that it's on a V6 only network. It's it's really straightforward because yes. I, I didn't know that they added that. Like, I was Yeah, like, Scott's been testing this pretty extensively in the lab for this V6 only lab and class and course walkthrough. And so it's been pretty cool. So he's been providing a lot of info about it. It's pretty neat. Yeah, it's, anyway, it's I, really nice. I noticed that Chrome, like Chromebooks don't do it. I was shocked. I was shocked that like Chrome OS didn't do it because you would think automatically carrying over from the, from the Android handset side that it would do it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that, and they carried that over from iOS, right? Mm -hmm. That's clearly where they got it from on Mac OS, but I would have expected pretty much exactly the same thing on Chrome OS, but no, it's not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. At least I'd, I'd, I'd say that my, my opinion, I would like to see more of it as well, just cause like, yeah, I think it solves a lot of the problems Nick mentioned. Uh, and also like, uh, it's parity between mobile devices and, you know, can, you know, desktops and, and laptops and things like that. And like, I mean, frankly, like I use my mobile device as m probably my main computing device these days. Like quite honestly, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I try to be very not online if I'm not working. Uh, so like, I guess that contributes to it a lot. Oh, that that, that, like, that tells us a lot, Chris, that you, you surf YouTube all day. Is that, is that what you're saying you do for work? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> At work, I'm on my cell phone all day. You on can YouTube. Uh, quote me Look, on that. On YouTube. Looking up. I do how do I do this network automation thing? <laughs> yeah. Looking up, like, how do I pretend to do my job? Yeah, so far, <laughs> it's not working very well. But no, like, I mean, like, I think that, like, from a network management standpoint, like, it, yeah, it makes sense, like, if you can offer that. Like, if mobile handsets already have this built in, they can provide a lot of that functionality. They've already got the code base there. Like, why don't we kind of standardize on that across everywhere? And then it's, you know, less crap to have to deal with on our network and less. Yeah, I think. Infrastructure I, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think this is something that all the, all the OS... I mean, if, uh, if all the OS folks got on board with this, I think it would be pretty cool. Similar to what like Microsoft was trying to do with getting, you know, 64 Toretto Isotap in the OS. They, they turned all that off because more native V6 was coming on, on board. But the reality is, is it would be nice to have this as a tooling as we start to go through to V6 only networks. And, I, and with the U.S. federal mandate requirements around V6 only networks, they are scrambling to try and figure out all the transition technologies to try and make their lives better. And it is not an easy landscape to work your way through. And many of these organizations, I did not realize, had so much embedded IPv4 information all over the place versus utilizing DNS. I thought we'd all caught up to the DNS is the way that you get to things. But apparently that is just not true. And, it's uh, wild to me. It's harder as a developer to deal with V4 than it is to deal with DNS. Like it is categorically harder to do that, to deal with in a specific address family and have to write logic in your code to deal with that. So I'm ranting. You can see I'm ranting, but like, it's harder to do that. Be a lazy developer. Stop it. <sighs> okay. I'm done. All right. Reach it <laughs> Use DNS. Use DNS. It's not yeah. hard. Use DNS. 
if you got, you know, put a record to quad a record, but to your point, Ed, I think if Microsoft added this, it would be a watershed moment, to be honest, because at least in the federal space, most of the stuff is windows based. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I think it sure have a huge impact. You know, that, that would, I mean, that would be a absolute monumental change. And, and a lot of what I've seen working in that space, uh, you know, on the, on the DOE's IPT is, you know, how do we deal with things that old, old code, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of old code, right? There's a lot of specialty stuff, you know, there's, you know, you see it, it's really, it's going to be everywhere, right? It's not just going to be in federal government. You're going to see this in, you know, legacy enterprises that have gotten like tons of old code around that just isn't going to be updated. Add CLAT. Add CLAT solves so many problems. And and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a Windows developer, but it seems like it won't, wouldn't be that hard to do. Yeah. I mean, well, and like I, like I mentioned, the code's already there because they've got the wireless yeah. main side. So the code already exists in the platform. It's just a matter of activating it for when they detect it. And what's funny is with, they've already got a detection mechanism. So even if they didn't use DGP V4 option 108, um, they could still use NCSI, network con- connectivity status indicator to determine whether they're on a V6 only network uh, and not on a V4 network at all. Um, so even if it got in a PIPA address, it would be like, well, I'm really on a V6 address, uh, V6 only network and, and do the right thing. So they have two different methods. They don't even have to come up with a new method in order to determine whether they're on a V6 only network and then turn that surface on. Um, obviously you need to get some way to get the prefix down on the device. You could push that in a, in a variety of ways, group policy, active directory. You could push it with, uh, with, um, with obviously an option scope, but there's lots of ways to get that information there. Or you could just have them use the default uh, well-known prefix, not really recommended, but it will totally work if you have one set up, you can do it. So I don't know, just just some ideas. I mean, I, I know you guys probably would appreciate it more than than the, than the, the, the common person, but if, it, uh, if it makes sense to you guys, then, then I think it's got some legs and, and potentially we should be circular, circulating it well, around to more folks. It's not just the, you know, it's not just the, the, um, the federal space, like service providers in general, like residential service providers in general could take huge advantage of this by, you know, maybe offering like a $10 a month discount. If you are only provided IPv6 only, right. You mm-hmm. put a NAT 64 upstream, just like you would a CGN device and everybody get, you know, all the devices can handle if they can do CLAT, then, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're all done, right? You don't have to mess with the, the quagmire and, you know, full pant load of IPv4 anymore, you know? Yeah. I definitely think there's something there. Anyway, that's it. The full, the full pant load of IPv4. I like yeah, that. man, it's a load. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Like that's I just want to do dookie. And it's yes. a big uh, legacy address dookie, you know, legacy protocol. Dirty baby diaper of IPv4. On <laughs> <laughs> oh, that bombshell. Wow. Yeah, we're coming up on an hour. Uh, we try to keep it under an hour or else people go, you guys went too long. We had to listen to Chris and Nick. We wanted more Jay and we didn't get it. John didn't talk enough. You know, Ed, I want to thank you. You calling in, you know, and getting a hold of uh, Nick and pushing this because um 
when we were doing it, it was kind of half a joke of us trying to figure out if we could get a half hour or 20 minutes out of something like that. And we ended up going for what, 45 minutes, almost an hour. 45 and, minutes of being wrong is, is a good investment of time, man. So well, but we, were, we were only wrong in the idea that, you know, you, you turned this whole thing and pivoted it into a whole bunch of V6. I was actually thinking back in terms of, you know, things that like, you know, the IPCP level for, or, you know, for point to point protocol and things like that. And the idea right. of what point to points looked like in different protocols, but you drug it into the real world here and said, Hey guys, we really need to look at this and make other people think about this. So this has been really helpful. I think there's going to be a lot of people thinking about this. Well, that presumes that a lot of people listen to this, but uh, we'll see where that there happens. There are tens of them, John, tens. Oh God, <laughs> beyond my wildest dreams. There's at least five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i would say like anytime that we can like learn more because like i think the takeaway is really uh as fun as it is to say nick and john are wrong which i'm gonna go on record and say you guys are wrong it, you know really like it's not as much about wrong it's more about nuance right like it's all about like uh there are still arguments to be had like on like all of these like positions and different schemes to be talked about. And unless you can argue about them from all the angles, like you probably don't understand them well. And I feel like that's been like the number one thing I've learned uh, throughout, I guess the past two seasons and coming up on season three now of like doing this is like, there are always like an incredible number of perspectives to have on how to operate a network. And there is no one right way to do it. And yep. uh, the only real answer is that Nick is wrong and just take that well, away. Well, Nick can be wrong, but he can still be a winner. <laughs> <laughs> does that imply i'm right sometimes i've said it a million times and i will continue to say it i want to be the dumbest guy in the room that way i always learn something that's why i have you around so thank you i like to learn i don't mind being wrong because it means that i eventually get to learn something see how i turned it around there Total <laughs> oh, yeah. well thanks for All having right, me we'll on, guys we got to wrap it up all right, so let's talk about where people can find you, uh, Ed. I think you're pretty. Uh, well, I'm st I'm still hanging out on Twitter, so at E Horley, so I occasionally pop on there. Um, obviously, doing the podcast over uh, uh, the IPv6 Buzz podcast over on the Packet Pushers, and uh, you know, still having fun doing that. Uh, I got a blog. I don't know if I really post all that often. It's probably you know off in the territory of like you know one post a year to say like, Oh, I should be posting more. Uh, but you can check it out at how funky dot, how funky .com. Um, that's, those are probably the best way you can find me on LinkedIn. Just, uh, E Horley, E H O R L E Y. And, uh, I guess that's it. And for those that have not listened to the IPv6 Puzz podcast, um, do it. There's a lot of great information in there. Even if you are staunchly against IPv6, there's still a lot of great information in there. In fact, I frequently get angry because there's not a new one for me to listen to. Cause I listened to that one specifically when I'm walking my dogs. I don't know why that's just one I pick. I pick. So I would like a daily episode, Ed, if you can work on that. Great. Uh, I'll, I'll, I will whisper sweet nothings in the mic for you uh, to uh, every day to send over. I think Nick, <laughs> Nick, you just need to give Ed a call. Maybe whenever you go walk the dog. Uh, once in a while we do that. See, there you go. We jam out on the phone. Yes. Occasionally, Nick uh, tolerates uh, my conversations of, of rants around certain things. No, I like that because I always learn something. All right, Chris, where can people find you on the internet? 
Yeah, uh, you can check out my blog, which is sometimes updated. I actually found it useful for myself the other day, uh, slash 64.tech. That's the word slash, the number is 64.tech. I'm on Twitter still, but pretty rarely, but uh, at CrankyNetman. And then uh, I have a, I don't know if you would say a Mastodon account, but I have a presence on the Mastiverse or whatever they call it, uh, but at CrankyNetman at (laughs) riceroni.org. And... uh, yeah, you can always find me on modem.show. Cool. Jay, how about you? Uh, so I'm still on Twitter hanging on with a singular talon. I don't know how that's possible, but try the Mastodon Leap. Not going to happen this century. Uh, you'll find me at frame underscore changer, but please don't touch your Ethernet frames. Leave them unperturbed. Um, and you can find my blog in some untitled sublime text file on my desktop computer that you'll ne- never read. So that's where I'm at. John, how about you? I think I'm the only one that's going to tell you John at Osmond.net is email that will always work. Um, if you're really bored, you can go look at miscreantsinaction.com where I keep a blog that is, as everybody's usually underutilized, but occasionally interesting to look at. Everything on it is good. Seriously. Everything on it is good. People should go read it. I say it every time. Go read the Ramp Room post. It's good. Yes. The V6 uh, the address plan one is really good, too. I reference that a lot for people. But uh, I'm Nick Braulio. I still have a Twitter that I have been phasing out. Uh, it's at forwarding plane. I look at it sometimes. Um, I'm much more active on Mastodon at, um, at forwarding plane at dial.modem.show. I have a blog at forwardingplane.net that is really only updated when we do a podcast that have cross posts on there. <laughs> and then of course I'm on LinkedIn as well. So with that, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Season three, season three, baby. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into the modem podcast where yesterday's modems are today's transponders. For more information or to request a topic, please visit modem.show.com.